when the borders shut, it was basically an unprecedented shutdown of the flow of migrants into the country. We essentially saw a zeroing out of migrant arrivals and we saw an increase in departures. On the very day that the border closed, I had a family who'd literally sold everything and they'd done that based on a job offer here in New Zealand. And they were due to fly just after midnight that 19th of March, the date that's etched in my brain and it'll never go away. Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, after two years, our borders are starting to open up again. And over the next few months, migrants will come back into the country. But will we bounce back to the way it was? I doubt it very much. I think the volume of migrants and the reliance on those migrant workers in our labour force are things that we need to consider very, very carefully. That's Paul Spoonley, distinguished professor at Massey University. I'm also talking to Newsroom's immigration reporter Matthew Scott about what now for migration. These families, which have these workers who are potentially providing us with labour that we desperately need, providing them with clearer avenues of entry with stated time frames and abilities to like bring their families and that kind of thing. It seems that's a, a route to a less volatile system. But back to the family due to fly to New Zealand on March 19th, 2020, the night that the borders closed. Here's immigration consultant Katie Armstrong. They never made it in. They literally had nowhere to go to sleep that night. You know, they, they went to the airport and were turned back. And then, you know, like a snowball, it was, you realised that this was thousands. So there were the people that were like that, a whole family who'd rocked up at the airport who couldn't come in. We also had a second cohort that blew my, my mind, and they were the, the temporary thousands of temporary visa holders who'd popped out of the country for whatever reason. Some were just literally going home to visit family, some were renewing uh, passports, some were getting documents so they could apply for residence, some were going for funerals. I've got a client who was going to see her mother who'd just been diagnosed with cancer. One particular girl had been here for 10 years. Her baby was born here and oh my gosh, their whole lives were here, but they weren't allowed to come in. I likened it to, you know, you, you're, you're walking home, Sharon, tonight. You go home and the door's locked. Some of them have never been let back in. We've got a cohort at the moment who were our international graduates. Traditionally, in about February, March, they go offshore. They, that's what happened. There were thousands of them that just got caught unawares and they weren't allowed back in. They've never been allowed back. It's still shocks me that we have treated those people so incredibly badly. Australia hasn't done that. Australia, who we love to point to as being the mean guys on the block when it comes to immigration um, and how you know caring New Zealand is and how equitable we are, we, we just cut them off at the knees. Yes, they were temporary migrants, but their connection to New Zealand was strong. So it's stronger, Sharon, than some New Zealanders. My brother-in-law, New Zealander by birth, entire adult life spent living offshore, he had more rights to come back in than any of those. If he did come back in, he would be counted as a migrant. That's right, returning Kiwis were the only migrant group allowed in. The New Zealanders 
who come in as migrants. So they've been in another country for 12 months or more, or they leave to go and live in another country for 12 months or more, became the major game in town. And we'd had a decade of a net loss of New Zealanders. And so with COVID, we saw a net gain. So we saw more New Zealanders coming back to New Zealand than those leaving. But if you look at the non-New Zealand citizen arrivals and departures, then since the beginning of COVID in March 2020, we've had a net loss of migrants. So more have been leaving. I mean, our population was growing at 2.2% a year before the pandemic, which was a number that we hadn't seen since the 1960s. And uh, then obviously the inflow of people dropped right down and um, we went from being out of like all the OECD countries, we, we had quite a um, high rate of growth, largely owing to um, people moving here. But uh, that level of growth dropped down to 0.6% after March 2020. It definitely meant that we kind of traded in our um, leading place in terms of having people move here and our population growing faster than other countries in that group. Yes, we suspended all our major visa categories. So our largest category, which was of most significance in terms of our labour market, is the skilled migrant category. And we just stopped processing those. So there were some um, applications being processed, but they tended to be of uh, family reunification uh, claims, so people who were separated. And there were a limited number of special case exemptions where people were allowed to come to New Zealand. And there were some high-profile um, cases with regard to sports and with regard to film and television production. But basically, we suspended processing applications. And so we've got a whole bunch of people who have applied to come to New Zealand from overseas whose applications have not been progressed. So we've talked about the ones that, you know, a whole family were waiting to come into New Zealand, couldn't come in. We've got the ones that sort of went offshore, supposedly just for a holiday with a suitcase who got stuck. Now we come to the third major cohort, and they were our split migrant families. That's where you had some of the family here on shore already and some offshore who had been fully in the process of supposedly coming to New Zealand together but just got this, you know, the wall came up. So mm. I've worked on levels with all these different situations. Um, a very major part of my work has been with the split families because that that was such an enormous humanitarian issue. You know, we've had... I'm still working with people who to this very day have not met the child that was born just after the border closure and that child was supposed to be born here mm. or was supposed to be born there and, and then just come in after. But, you know, there, there are... I can't begin to explain how absolutely terrible this has been for so many migrants. And I guess those of us working in the field have been really very... We've been personally impacted by this because we can't rationalise the decisions that have been made. And those split families, they won't be reunited for months yet, will they? So so along the way, through 
enormous efforts and campaigning and protests and vigils and lobbying and, you know, you can't, you know, the amount of work behind the scenes to try to get any traction on reuniting families has been enormous. But And we have had some successes, you could say. We've had some small pickings off of groups that can reunite. They've always come with fish hooks. We have a oh, moment, you know that excitement. There's a category coming, people's nerves on edge. Am I going to be in it? And then out comes the fine print and it's like, oh, gosh, that's just left a whole load of other people out. And we're still in it. We've still got people who will not be able to apply for visas for their family members until step five of the border. To put, and that's October, mm. unless it's that, That's and the that, final that's, step. That's the final step, and that's just indicating when, from when they can apply for visas. It's not saying you can come in from that date. Actually, the call centre of Immigration New Zealand is predicting that a, a, a standard visitor visa could take seven months once the border's actually open to those applications. So I've got families saying, uh, we're going to be spending a fourth Christmas apart unless something happens. At which point people then ask me, why are they still here? Why are they clinging on? Some of these migrants have invested years into New Zealand. A lot of them have invested in international education. And unless they can keep working here, they would not still be here from choice. It's driven by necessity. Paul, why why is it that we had such a high rate of migrant workers? How did it happen? It happened partly because of New Zealand's demography. So by 2014, our fertility rate had dropped below uh, replacement level. So we were beginning to see a slowing in the rate of people entering the workforce. Can I just put this into context? So for the last decade, the high-income world has been experiencing what's called a labour crunch. So as fertility declines and as we have fewer workers, domestic workers available, all of us, all of the high-income countries have increasingly relied on migrant workers. Now, New Zealand had some of the highest arrival rates of any country, almost a third higher than Australia. So in in that June year to June 2020, in the 12 months to June 2020, we had over 79,000, a net gain of 79,000 permanent arrivals. So that meant about 154,000 arrivals. And then taking away the departures, the net gain was over 79,000. Historically, that is very, very high. And relative to population, it is high in relation to any other country. But we also, at the point of lockdown, had over 300,000 people here on temporary work and study visas. And I include study visas there because uh, students on a a study visa can work up to 20 hours per week. So we've become addicted, if you like, to migrant workers as a very important source of labour in this country. And I think what COVID has done has shown what, how vulnerable our labour market is when we don't have any workers, migrant workers coming in. There are a number of industries that have become have become very reliant on migrant workers. Some of those are areas like horticulture and agriculture. So, for example, in dairying, you know, the Filipino migrants have become a very important part of dairying in this country. If you look at elder care, 
about a third of the workforce are migrant workers. And you can see across various sectors, the reliance, the growing reliance on a migrant workforce, either temporary or permanent. But how do you change that? What's the alternative? The alternative is a little difficult, partly because we're all going to be facing increasing labour supply issues as our demography goes south, as our fertility drops and our population ages. So ageing is important because we've got people exiting the workforce and then we've got to have people to replace them. And if you look around the high-income world, then we've got very similar labour shortages. And so we've got this competition. And, And essentially what New Zealand will do is recruit people out of South Africa or China or India or the UK or Germany to fill those shortages. But we will also contribute to the labour supply in those other countries, particularly to Australia. So we might well return to those years around 2011, 2012, where we saw this huge exodus out to Australia, including of our most skilled workforce. In 2012, 53,800 people left New Zealand to live permanently in Australia in that one year alone. And with the borders opening just last week to Australians, there's talk again of a Kiwi exodus. Eden Park, capacity 50,000. Imagine this whole stadium leaving the country. Well, that's what officials are predicting will actually happen this year. Open the borders and Kiwis will fly the coop. My partner and I do, and we're just going to go travel for six months, see what's out there, see what opportunities there are. Anywhere really, Australia is one of my big points. I've actually got three friends all moving to like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. So you'd think this is the time to fling the doors wide open to migrant workers. Well, Paul Spoonley says it's not that simple. There are a range of issues. One of them is that those migrant workers and their families come in not only do they contribute to labour supply, but they increase demand. So one of the issues that the Productivity Commission has been charged with looking at is what sort of flow of migrants coming to New Zealand is able to be called an absorption rate? So what number of workers and in what categories would we be able to sustain without putting undue pressure on, for example, our housing market? The second issue is that we've become... in very reliant on those temporary workers. So 5% of our labour force were temporary migrants. Very, very high compared with other countries. Australia's is 3%. And there's an ethical issue. You know, if you bring people to work in New Zealand on a temporary basis, should you allow them the opportunity to transition to permanent residency? Well, we did have that opportunity. There's widespread enthusiasm among the business, agricultural and health sectors for a new one-off residence visa that could lead up to 165,000 migrants stay in the country. But not at the rate of 300,000 people being in the country. So, you know, were we being bringing them here under false pretenses, but also were we paying them enough? Were we making sure that they weren't exploited once they were here? And I think all of those issues need to be on the table in terms of considering what our future rate, either of permanent migrants or of temporary migrant workers, uh, should be. Now that the, the borders are reopening, and there's talk about a reset, although you hear it's been called a rebalance of our migration policy. Yes. 
And we know that the that the Productivity Commission is presenting a report on the impact on of differing levels of migration. That's due at the end of this month. What's your feeling about this? Should we have fewer migrants? So the first thing is that with with immigration policies, when you are an island nation, you necessarily can cherry pick who you want. We don't have people, by and large, trying to get to New Zealand in boats, and we don't have people coming through tunnels, you know, hidden under trucks. Our immigration policies have the luxury of being able to cherry pick, and we've we've always done that. I'm not naive and think that we should have no borders, <laughs> um, you know, tempting as that is to think, but... Um, there are two things. One is that what I've seen through COVID is when you've got a situation where migrants are actively disenfranchised, you, you pull up the drawbridge, you close the border, and then you start differentiating b- between people's rights in a very caste-like way. You know, you're a citizen, you've got these inalienable rights, you're a permanent resident, even though you've lived here for 50 years, you, you don't have as, your rights aren't the same. You're a temporary migrant, well, sorry, we don't care about you was the message in a way, like you, you've just got no rights, off you go now. And my biggest disappointment in some ways, over and above the policies themselves, was the communication I think that the communications were really lacking. They lacked empathy towards our migrant community. We never actually got a message from the government saying, we actually really do care about you. We're really trying to sort this out for you. We want to hear from you. It was actually the opposite. We got blanket sort of templated emails saying the border's closed for people's safety. You know, we're saving lives. It was as if it was there was a sort of absolute determination to just marginalize them so that's the first thing if i if i could rewrite covid it would be that immediately there should have been a touch point for people to be able to communicate properly these were very serious issues and when people tried to raise them they were accused of spamming the second thing is that about you asked about should we have fewer temp- fewer migrants so i totally acknowledge uh, that immigration into New Zealand needs to go hand in hand with our ability to cope. You've got to think about the receiving population. You do have to think about infrastructure. I mean, we're, we're in that luxury position. We're not Poland at the moment. I don't mind that the government changes goalposts for the future if, if we feel that we need to redirect our policies. But the, the one main message to the government would be do not move goalposts on people who've committed already to being in New Zealand. So on April the 30th, the Productivity Commission is going to present its final report on the impact of differing levels of migration. What are its recommendations? Well, it seems like a big part of it is making sure that temporary migrant workers who are coming into the country, making sure that there is a kind of stability to that. For example, they're going to recommend removing uh, visa conditions that mean migrant workers have to stay with a specific employer, like a sponsor, as it were, because this opens them up for exploitation and also if they can't move around to places to... uh, jobs that, have, that better serve them. It's all in all just a more unstable situation for them. 
they recommend doing things like having the number of uh, temporary migrant visas that can lead to to residence pathways, making sure that the number of these are linked to the number of residence visas on offer, I guess, to ensure that there is space for these people to um, stay here and continue to fill the labour gaps. I guess the upshot would be that also these families get granted peace of mind that they can stay somewhere, not have to go back. Our reliance on temporary and permanent migrants immediately prior to COVID and our border lockdown was starting to get worrying because of the very high numbers that we were seeing arrive in the country and the high reliance. And the Productivity Commission is charged with looking at whether we were substituting cheap migrant labour for both locals and for investment in productivity increases. So, for example, you know, can we use technology more efficiently and that reduces our reliance on migrant workers coming into this country? If if you look at the um, um, horticultural sector and and say the apple industry, what's very interesting there is when you get in a pack house, typically the majority of workers there are New Zealanders and there's a very high reliance on technology. When you go out into the orchards, Uh, then there's a very high reliance on people actually picking the apples and you will see that there is a very significant proportion of those workers are actually migrant workers. Now, we've we've lost the backpackers, uh, but the RSC scheme, the Recognised Seasonal Employment Scheme, has has been a major contributor to our workforce on, on orchards. And the question is, well, why aren't we using technology in some of those areas um, in the way that, for example, the dairy industry has used technology to to help complement uh, people on the, in the workplace. So things aren't going to bounce back to the way they were pre-COVID? I doubt it very much. I think the volume of migrants and the reliance on those migrant workers in our labour force are things that we need to consider very, very carefully and the Productivity Commission, I am sure, will provide us with some guidance there. Internationally, there is going to be huge competition for a internationally mobile skilled workforce. And the question for me is, what should we expect? I mean, I think we've gained in terms of brand reputation internationally through COVID in the way that we've managed COVID. So there's an attractiveness which has increased through the period of COVID. However, we are not competitive when it comes to paying rates, uh, market rates for labour internationally. So you offset some of those lifestyle issues with actually what you can pay for workers. So our challenge will be, how many should we look to attract and can we attract them? And the other issue is, can we retain both migrant workers, but also particularly New Zealanders who are looking to go offshore as borders reopen. We, we have one in four, Sharon, one in four now born overseas. That is the New Zealand 2022 reality. So that connection with the rest of the world is vital. And our policies of the future are going to have to balance all of these different things, including how do we ensure that migrants don't feel that by coming here, 
they run the risk of becoming completely cut off from their family, you know, if there's a future pandemic. And Immigration Minister Chris Farfoy is due to announce a rebalance of our immigration settings in coming weeks. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. Thanks to Matthew Scott, Paul Spoonley and Katie Armstrong. Kakite Arnold.